as we were thinking about the store, we did think about every aspect of how do you leverage the square footage, but then how do you leverage the story? I, I think that's one of the, the bigger pieces too in terms of experience is, you know, gone are the days that you just set product on the shelf and you know, it's interesting. But when it comes to really interesting stories, that's a whole different way of thinking about experience and being able to bring brands to life, being able to give them a space to have the content that is very pure to them show up in unique ways that translate back to their DNA and how they want people to consume and how we activate end use. It's, it's very much about storytelling. And that's a component too of how do you bring an experience to life? I'm David Kepron, and this is Next Level Experience Design. I grew up one of five boys, no sisters, just five rambunctious, energetic, physically active, sometimes mischievous, food-consuming boys. Oh, we had dogs and cats and birds and gerbils and guinea pigs and turtles. I think even at one point we had a parrot or was it a cockatiel? In any case, my mother, God bless her soul, somehow held this sometimes unwieldy lot together and made sure, along with my father, that we were exposed to the great outdoors. This, of course, was at a time where there was no such thing as a home computer or a cell phone. There was a TV, but for many years it was black and white with something like three or four channels, and so outside we were most of the day at the park, the swimming pool, or playing in the street while the summertime sun went down, and the last round of Kick the Can was played before we were all called in for a bath. Summer trips in my family went, took us from Montreal to Winnipeg, and that's where my dad's side of the family lived, and they brought us through Toronto and most of northern Ontario. We camped the entire way, which was always a ton of fun, and the five of us, in a station wagon with a dog, pulled a camper for five days. My dad made sure that we were also well-versed in the world of fishing, which I can imagine must have tested his patience as toddlers undoubtedly got hooks stuck in themselves and each other more than they likely caught any fish. Throughout high school, there was no music or theater program at my high school, and so my friends and I played every sport that there was able to be played, starting with football in the fall, leading to volleyball, and then basketball, and then track and field and rugby, there never was a time in school where I wasn't playing any sports, and I loved it. My high school football coach, Chuck Poirier, still stands as a significant and memorable figure through those years. All of my brothers and I became ski school instructors, which was one of the only ways to survive a Montreal winter, which could naturally get as cold as about minus 20 or 30 below zero. It was no really big deal. My parents had us all on skis as soon as we could stand, somewhere around the age of two or three, and so... We were used to being out in the cold. In any case, my parents made sure that we played sports all of the time and that we were always physically active. In college, my mom would show up at all of my football games, sitting in the stands, rain or shine, cheering me and the team on, and she showed up for all my baseball games too. She was always there reminding me that playing team sports was important because it taught you cooperation and collaborating towards a common goal, teamwork and that you had to rely on others sometimes to reach your objectives. 
She really believed in the all-for-one and one-for-all mantra of the three musketeers. My mother had no problem with us being team players, but she believed in leadership. In fact, she always encouraged her sons to lead the charge in whatever team they were playing. As for sports stores to meet our needs when I was growing up in Montreal, well, there was Canadian Tire and another store I remember going to with my father called Le Baron. There was nothing like Eddie Bauer with indoor fish ponds and taxidermy statues of giant bears or elk with enormous antlers. And there was nothing like REI with enormous rock climbing walls and an extraordinary assortment of camping equipment. And there certainly wasn't anything like the two-story, 100,000-square-foot Dick's Sporting Goods store that seemed to have merchandise for any sport you could possibly imagine. My Uncle Roy, though, one of my dad's brothers, was the Wilson Sporting Goods distributor for Western Canada, and so we occasionally got a good set of golf clubs, a few flats of balls, and some tennis rackets, but then again, nothing like you'd ever find at Dick's Sporting Goods. Dick's Sporting Goods is an amazing story of a young man, Dick Stack, who worked in an army surplus store, and who, when asked to come up with some ideas about what other products should be sold, was dismissed by his boss, the shop owner. Upset about that interaction, he goes to his grandmother's house and shares the story of what just went down at work. And his grandmother literally took money out of a cookie jar on the kitchen shelf and gives him 300 bucks to start his own company instead of staying as an employee in someone else's store. Years later, Dick Stack then passes on a legacy to his son, Ed, who turns Dick's Sporting Goods into a mega brand in the sporting goods industry with about 800 or so stores and a number of different brands. Dick's Sporting Goods also recognizes, like my mom, the profound impact that sports have on youth, community, and culture. With their Sports Matter program, they support Little League teams as well as aspiring professional athletes. In fact, they don't call people who shop in their stores customers or guests. To Dick's Sporting Goods, their customers are all athletes, and their sales associates are teammates. Enter Tony Roller into the Sporting Goods story. Tony is an ardent hockey fan, which is always strange to me because I grew up in Montreal during the reign of the Montreal Canadiens hockey team, but it never seemed to catch with me because I guess I was a skier. In any case, Tony also is the senior vice president of in-store environments for Dick's Sporting Goods. In the past couple of years, Tony and the Dick's team have launched a couple of extraordinary sporting goods store concepts, including House of Sport and Public Lands. Dick's House of Sports is truly one of the most interactive sporting goods stores that there is today. Complete with batting cages, golf simulators, and an outdoor practice field, the environment invites athletes to try before they buy and to experience the feeling of sports while they're in the store. Public Lands, on the other hand, is capitalizing on an emerging trend towards hiking and climbing and boasts a two- to three-story rock wall in the center of the store. When Ed Stack was interested in creating the next evolution of a sporting goods store concept, he told his team that what he wanted was something that if it was built across the street from a Dick Sporting Goods store, it would put them out of business. Well, create something that would put us out of business? Now that's a challenge for any store designer who is sports-oriented or who has a competitive mindset. Well, that couldn't possibly be unanswered. So... Tony Roller and the Dick's team delivered House of Sport, changing what we would have typically thought of as a sports store into an interactive playground for athletes, both young and old. Tony joined the Dick's Sporting Goods team in May of 2014 as the Vice President of Visual Merchandising, and in 2019, she was named the Senior Vice President of In-Store Environment, Visual Merchandising, and House of Sport. 
She's responsible for bringing the brand to life through the overall in-store experience while ensuring that the athlete is at the center of merchandising strategies. Tony has a deep history in retail design and store planning, and prior to Dick's Sporting Goods, she served as the VP of in-store environments at the Home Depot. She also held leadership roles at Best Buy, Levi Strauss, and Maurice's. While both of us attended the International Retail Design Conference in November of 2022, Tony was gracious in accepting an early morning invitation to have a conversation about sports as a cultural phenomenon, the growth of Dick's Sporting Goods as a business and a brand, and the evolution of sporting goods store concepts and why sports matters. Tony Roller, welcome to the Next Level Experience Design Podcast. Ooh, good morning, David. I'm so excited to be here. I told you before we got technically on mic that I was, I wanted to use the word intimidated, but that seems wrong. I'm more excited because, you know, I think of you as a bit iconic in the interview space, and I think it's going to be a fun chat this morning. Iconic? Now let's talk about iconic brands for a second, you know, because Dix is an amazing company. I think uh, I equally saw you last year at the International Retail Design Conference, and as you were being interviewed and talking all about some of these new formats you've got, House of Sports, we'll get there in a minute, Public Lands, amazing. Um, I thought, okay, well, they're just doing some really interesting things. They're way better than the sports authority that I had around the corner from my place, you know, years ago, which was just stacks, you know, of stuff but very little on the experience side. So there's so much in here, specifically around experience and, and, and sports in general and, and what it means culturally. And I'm really interested in, you know, some future casting around where you think this is all going for, you know, the world of sports. So let's start off with talking about uh, this idea of sports as a cultural phenomenon. Um, I grew up skiing. Uh, actually, there was no theater or music program in my high school when I was there. So the only thing for me and my buddies to do was sports. And we literally started off in the fall with football. We went on to volleyball and basketball over the winters. And then we hit track and field in the spring. And then you just kept like, that's what you did. So I grew up in a very sports-minded house. I was a ski school director for years and played double-A baseball and, you know, college football and stuff. So I was always in that world. And my mom always used to say, you're going to play team sports because it's going to teach you how to get along with people. Not like I have a problem getting along with people, but it was really, really important to her. Thank God bless her. She was in the stands every football game when it was raining, even so. And um, I'm really curious about, you know, how you land in this world and what you think sports have to do with anything that we do. Wow. There's so many layers to that, David. We could be here for, I don't know, a couple of hours, but I'm, I'm going to probably start with how we think about sport uh, at Dick's Sporting Goods. It's insane when you think about the big scope of sport, because, you know, when you start when you're little, it's one of the first things that probably um, you, you do with mom and dad. You do it in the backyard, whether it's throwing a ball or going to a game. And so it's often very grounded in the roots of your family. Mm. And then you move it forward and you think about holiday gatherings and it's like the TV's on and, you know, everyone's you know, gathered around the TV. And, well, not these days. They're gathered around, you know, they're, they're watching it online. But it's interesting because one of the things that we've really looked at over probably the past, I would say, eight, nine, 10 years is just um, one of the, the sad things about sport in relationship to funding mm. being pulled away from the school systems. And so that's actually what launched um, our Sports Matter Foundation, because we just believe so fundamentally about the opportunity for kids to play sports, 
what it means to them, whether that's the things that they do after hours, whether in many cases, you know, it's like the two people that often matter most to you in your life will be, you know, your parents and then your coach. Mm. Um, it certainly does start to form certain like, um, you know, kind of intrinsic values around leadership around working as a team, you know, that travels with you all your life. And then it's very intriguing when you think about the world of sport and how it does bring people together. Um, it is a cultural phenomenon because it influences everything from how you think about fashion to how philanthropic some of these individuals have become mm -hmm. in terms of giving back to their communities, giving back to the schools, and once again, giving back to, um, to young athletes and onboarding them really early. You know what's great about this idea of, of community and culture and things, I think with respect to sport, to me, I do have retailers and, and other you know sort of companies on the podcast who we talk to, who their world doesn't directly tie specifically to the creation of culture and community, although we all talk about that, right? Um, but retail is is really about community. I mean, it's about selling stuff ultimately, but it's really ultimately we know way more about culture and community and belonging and sort of affinity for different types of groups. And that, to me, seems to be a really interesting and like directly parallel path to how, what you just talked about sports as community and sports as, um, you know, in groups and being connected to other people and, and cooperation and all those sort of skills that hopefully my mother was trying to teach me as a kid, you know, how to cooperate, how to get along, you know, how to solve a problem, how to work towards a common goal, all those kinds of things um, that seem to be also so directly tied to the world of retail. You know, it's it's funny, too, because I do think that there is that piece of how you pull it all the way through and you think about um, how sport shapes you. It's it's kind of funny because I grew up in a very, very small town where um, there wasn't actually anything beyond football and basketball. There really wasn't organized girls sports. And I, I think about fast forwarding and meeting my uh, husband and he had a 12 year old son. And it's funny because he played hockey, lacrosse, soccer, and a brief stint at baseball. And I remember saying to my husband, you know, he wasn't my husband at the time. I'm funny. It's funny that I even worked out because I was like, you know, he's not particularly good at any of these sports. <laughs> was that a qualification? The well, guy I marry has to be good at sports. No, I, I was like, well, yeah, I was like, you know, he's not particularly good at this. Like, do you think he's going to get a scholarship? Because that's how my mind worked because of where I grew up. It was like, you know, part of moving on and going to college was getting a scholarship. And I was like, ooh, he's not, he's just, I don't see that in his horizon. And my husband was like, no, you don't understand. This is about working with others. This is about creating a sense of team. This is about leading. This is about shaping how people think. Yeah. And so it's interesting because I pull that all the way through to our retail environment. And um, I, I think you're familiar, but we, we call our customers athletes mm -hmm. and we call our associates teammates. And it's very interesting because inside of our stores, there is such a sense of community. And, and you'll often see, um, you know, you'll see localization. So you'll see where, you know, they'll bring in the jerseys from the local high school teams. And, and we want that because we want people who come into our stores in our communities to be able not just to buy product, but also to relate and identify with the fact that we support the community um, and we support certainly the, the way they think about play. 
I mean, there are a lot of companies who, who have sort of a give back program and it's laudable. And I, I think it just goes to sort of these, these core principles, right, about how Dix runs their business. And so what I wanted to do is take a second and go back in time for a moment to be able to go forward again. Uh, and there are some companies who have true, authentic origin stories. Timberland, for example, you know, brand I love has a great one. Um, and I was joking in a previous interview um, with um, Amber Bazdar, actually from Timberland. I was saying, when my kids were young, they used to say to me, Dad, just what is Victoria's Secret anyway? You know, and we know like that brand, great brand, but totally fabricated narrative around who this woman was and, and then a, a brand built on that. But Dix comes from, I'm going to say, humble beginnings, um, you know, father and father who gives a business to a son and then grows into this multi-billion dollar 800 plus, you know, locations across multiple brands. So if you can take us through some of that trajectory and also why Ed Stack is so critical in terms of just the, the thinking power and, and, and sort of moral compass, you know, for the, for the company. Wow. So if I would go all the way back, interestingly enough, we are knocking on the door of our 75 year anniversary, which is um, next year. And so you're right. It started out as a very small, it was actually a bait and tackle shop. Um, if you go all the way back to, you know, to, to the origin and, and the story, um, you know, Dick Stack, which is Ed's father, um, was working in the small bait and tackle shop. And one day um, his, his boss was like, oh, you know, you, you seem very entrepreneurial and I'm trying to figure out what categories to expand. And I have no idea 75 years ago if they referred to it as categories, but still, um, you know, he, he said, you know, why don't you think about what else we should carry? And, you know, bring me a list. And he brings him a list. And the, you know, the, the gentleman was like, yeah, I, I don't see it. This is all kind of, yeah, I, yeah, it feels a little dumb to me. But, you know, th good, good luck. Thanks for that. And so he goes home really kind of, you know, downtrodden and a little upset and proceeds to, you know, to tell the story at the, at the dinner table. And, um, you know, you've got to think 75 years ago, very different economy. And, uh, you know, his mom gets up, goes over to, uh, you know, to the cabinet, pulls out a cookie jar and gives him $300 and says, you know what, why don't you go start your own business? Mm -hmm. And I think if we could all start a business for $300, I think we would all, um, we'd jump at that chance, but that's all how it started. And, you know, he had a vision for it. And, you know, Ed, um, Stack, who, you know, as you mentioned now, has migrated us to an amazing place, but he remembers working in that store uh, growing up, um, coming back from college. And, and it was interesting because he often tells the story about his dad, um, you know, having this uh, incident with a, a young boy comes in and tries to, um, to steal a baseball glove. And, you know, his dad worked the sales floor at that time, and, and he goes over to the boy and he's like, you know, I, I see what's happening here. What, what's going on? And he's like, you know, I just, I just want to play baseball. And, you know, I need a glove and my parents can't afford it. And, you know, I just, yeah, I'm, I'm really sorry. Please don't call my mom and dad. And, you know, um, Dick Stack said to him, you know, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to let you have the baseball glove. And actually, you know what? You're going to need, you're going to need a pair of shoes too. I'm going to give you the shoes and I want you to go play baseball, and I want you to stay out of trouble. And I want you to come back, and I want you to tell me about the first game that you win. And so it goes back like really, really far in our, in, in our core DNA in terms of 
being good to people, um, being thoughtful about how important sport is. And then that's something that I, I think Ed has just, he's pulled that all the way through. Um, it's, it's part of how we think about things. And now I'm going to kind of fast forward. And to your point, it's like, you know, we have 740 Dick Sporting Goods now. When, when Ed took over the business, there were seven. Um, so, so he's certainly positioned Dick Sporting Goods in a unique way. Um, and, you know, we have other banners, but I'll, I'll start with Dick's for just a moment to kind of keep the thread mm-hmm. uh, of the history. And I, I go back and I think about, you know, starting the Sports Matter Foundation making sure that we continue to give back uh, to youth sport. I think about 2018 when we made a very focused decision in terms of how we were going to um, think about assault rifles. Right. Um, you know, that is, it's an interesting piece in our, in our history because that's a great example of doing what's right. Mm-hmm. Maybe in some people's eyes, not right for the business. Um, because it certainly was a situation where, you know, that, that was a loss in business. Sure. Um, and for some people, it may not be right for them. Mm-hmm. But for, for us, um, for Dick Sporting Goods, um, it was really, really important to make sure that we were doing the right things in our community and we were standing for the right things. Yeah. And then, you know, I pull it forward to, you know, the pandemic, a year that was um, just Gosh, it's so funny. I used to have this great memory where I could go back in time and tell you exactly when things um, would even go into our stores. And then there's that lost year of the pandemic. And I, I think about how how we treated our associates um, in our stores and how we thought about it. Because, you know, we shut down all of our stores yeah. uh, with the exception of like six out in, in California. Um, and we stood up curbside pickup in 48 hours. Uh, because, you know, that's the other thing that I think Ed has instilled in all of us is while the chain has grown and the number of banners have grown, we're still very scrappy. Mm-hmm. Like sometimes everyone just rolls up their shirt sleeves. It's like everyone's in it together um, and, and you just figure it out. Right. And so, you know, imagine having the stores closed. Um, imagine having, you know, we furloughed, um, you know, our, our corporate employees. And then you fast forward and then by the end of the year, we had had the opportunity to bring everybody back and to also make their salaries whole. That's great. And you think about a company and you think about someone like Ed Stack who started as a family-owned business. And, you know, that it, it's interesting because it pulls through everything we do. We do it through the lens of this is a family-owned business. Um, and that's everything from how we think about our athletes to our teammates to our communities and our shareholders. Yeah. And so I think for us, it is more than retail. It's more than a transaction. It's about a relationship. It it strikes me, and I think this is increasingly true with a younger generation of shoppers, um, that they want you to stand for something. They want you to to like and to say it. And we certainly saw that at, let's say, uh, in the beginning of the pandemic, but also around the George Floyd murder and all of that and how kids came out in the streets and people were standing up for things that they believed in. And um, in the States, of course, that's, you know, part of the cultural heritage, right? Be able to stand up for your rights and march in the streets and, and do those kinds of things, you know, stand up for the things you believe in. But that seems to me, because I think it's true even of my sons, you know, if the brand isn't lining, aligning, if they're not doing what they're actually saying, you know, they're not walking the talk, they don't like 
they don't wait around too long to dump them and go elsewhere. So it seems like a lot of that is know what you stand for and do it. Like CVS, you know, dump cigarettes. We, we've talked about that before. Um, and that was a huge multi-billion dollar hit to their business. But they said, no, I mean, we can't both be thinking about being a health and wellness company, CVS Health now, um, and also be selling cigarettes or and alcohol or whatever it is. Those things just don't connect. So I think, you know, applaud you all on the assault weapons. Um, but it's not an, across the board, all stores have, or, or have they? Have they all stores got rid of assault we- weapons or is it, yeah, they have, okay. Yes, absolutely. So um, all stores... Um, we, we pulled that out, uh, never to be seen again. Um, and we have been very, very consistent about that. Now we do still sell, um, guns in some of our stores. Um, you know, we, we think of obviously hunting as an outdoor activity. Um, however, the, the assault rifle piece just took us to a place that we, we just did not feel that we needed to be part of that story. Um, and we've kept that discussion alive because we want to continue to ensure that, um, to your point, it, it wasn't a moment in time. It wasn't uh, necessarily politically charged. Mm-hmm. It wasn't something that we were saying, look at us. It was about doing the right thing for the individuals in our community and making sure that um, that we were thoughtful about that. So that brings us to another interesting thing, which I think completely aligns with this, doing the right thing, but thinking about leadership. Um, an overwhelming number of leaders in your company are women. And I'm, I'm like, yes, you know, my wife would certainly be right there with you all, you know, saying, yeah, great, you know. Um, she's a professional, has been for, for years as well. It was just a lot of female presence at the senior thought leadership level. And I think that's also really interesting because it's changing. Thank you, USA Athletics or USA Soccer and Abby Wambach and the whole sort of, you know, the, the Olympic team and, and changing that and pushing for pay equity, you know, and those kinds of things with female athletes. Um, but there's been a long history of inequity and just sort of the marginalization of whether it's been basketball or soccer or other, you know, women's sports not being on par. And what I'm really curious about is, is, is that sort of sensibility that I think is driven, and I'm not afraid to say that there is a sensibility ch- difference between, I think, men and, and women in leadership roles, et cetera, but is that something that's driving sort of the thinking of how the business is being done, how you're attending or tuning in to customers and things like that? And if you could talk about that, I'd be really interested. So, you know, it, it's interesting because uh, we, we get that question oftentimes, um, and it's when you're in the room, we don't think of it that way because we do think of, of ourselves, course, sure. you know, as, as a team. Um, but what's interesting about it is, and I think there's, there's a phrase that I love and I'm sure it's used a lot these days. And, uh, I, I would love to think about who, who I should be giving credit to for, because certainly someone said it way before me, but there is the conversation of, um, you can't be what you don't see. And so whether that be in the workplace, so female leadership and and how do you uh, position everyone to feel like they have a role and the ability to lead, or whether that be when you walk into a retail environment and be able to see the fact that, oh, I could play that sport. 
I could be that person. Um, that shoe is made for me. And you know, it's interesting because Ed and Lauren both, and then um, our senior vice president of Softlines, uh, Carrie Guffey, she's got both um, apparel as well as footwear. And you know, she and Ed and Lauren have been really leading the charge around the fact that um, you know we, we actually don't have shoes made for women, uh, specific to like basketball players. Uh, cleats. And so how, you know, it, it's, it's interesting because, you know, we wouldn't ask a man to use, you know, check down and use a women's shoe because of the last uh, and how that supports your foot and how that supports your body as you're playing. And it's really only been over the past two years where you've started seeing um, female players come to the table, actually building their own shoes so that they are able to protect their bodies and certainly compete and be better athletes. And so, you know, when you think about that red thread that pulls all the way through, it's about making sure that everyone has a seat at the table and everyone can be seen and heard equally and they can write themselves into the story. I was going to say, when you said everyone's in the room and it just is, it's not something that you go, oh, well, look at how many women are sitting at the table here. It's like, it just is. And it shouldn't matter, although it has mattered, right? I mean, we've these are issues that we struggle with, I think, culturally in the States for, you know, so many years, equity across multiple, you know, um, incarnations of that. So that's exciting and, and to see where that's going. I love the idea of talking about what happens in store and making shoes, which brings us to this idea of experience um, and the making of experience, which is your role, right? SVP of, of in-store experience. We talk a lot about experience in the retail space. And the interesting change for me, having gone from retail into the hospitality world, is I was saying to someone in a, re a recent conversation, you know, the interesting thing about retail is that's in the end about selling stuff and, and ideas, Okay, but it's wrapped around this idea where we talk about creating experience around it. Whereas in the hospitality space, they've never sold stuff. So it's only been about experience and how those two worlds are merging. You're seeing Shinola and Equinox and West Elm and Restoration Hardware now. They're retail brands merging into hospitality. But I want to focus on this idea of experience in terms of what drives it. You know, what actually are some of those component pieces that we think make it better because we arguably, like you said, you had uh, curbside pickup during the pandemic. I don't have to go to a Dick's to get my shoes. I can order them online and have them sent or pick them up. So what is it that drives us to stores? And what is it that you think makes experience rich or meaningful or connecting? So I think I'm going to start um, with the, the second part of that question. Okay. Uh, and then I'll back into what, uh, what causes people to come to stores. But, you know, it's interesting because I think that the definition of experience, one of the things that my team and I talk about a lot is that the lines are so blurry these days. Because, you know, there was a time when we were, we thought about sectors, we thought about retail, and we thought about hospitality. And, you know, the example that I always give my team when we're talking, especially like new, new team members, um, I always use the example of when you go to visit your family, say you get on a flight, and when you land, they say, well, how was your flight? And when you think about that, it's everything from... Could I find a parking space? To how long did it take me to get through the line? To gosh, you know, I didn't get peanuts on the plane and I thought I was going to. Uh, the person that sat beside me, you know, 
talked the entire time. So this, this kind of, you know, quote unquote, how was your flight? Like there's so many things that go into that sure. and it shapes the experience you had when you flew. And so I think about that the same way when I think about the interaction with a brand, because whether it's you start online and you're trying to figure out and do a little research and, you know, how many clicks does it take to get to the information that I need all the way through to what happens when I come to the store. And so when you think about going to the store, when you think about going to Dick's Sporting Goods, there's a lot of controllables and then there's a lot of uncontrollables and you know our stores are you know roughly 50,000 square feet now the house of sports stores are double that size so to try to control everything in terms of an athlete's experience inside of 120,000 square feet is it's a lot mm -hmm. it's a lot and so Everything that we do inside of our box has to be done through the lens of, will this be a great experience for the athlete? And that could be something, um, you know, it, it, it just runs such a gamut because it could be something as easy as, you know, my, my kids are over at the soccer field and they forgot something. I need to get in. I need to grab it. I need to get back. Or it could be, you know, mom and a couple of friends and their daughters coming into the store on a Saturday morning, getting ready for a trip. And, you know, that's, that's a more leisurely, I've got, you know, 35, 40 minutes, I'm going to be in and out of the fitting room. I'm, you know, getting footwear on the footwear deck. It's like, you can't control all of those experiences, but they're all just very knitted together in terms of how people think about the brand. So that's a very long-winded, not surprising answer, but <laughs> it, it is around being very um, holistic in terms of what is that definition of experience and just everything being steeped in customer insights. What that speaks to me is, is that there, there are clearly different reasons for which people shop, right? There's the purpose-driven shopper. Mostly what I like to do is I know what I want. I'm going to get it. I always joke about my favorite, you know, my favorite Saturday morning store is Home Depot. Um, and like, I know what I want. I'm going to go and get it. And I don't linger too much. I'm sort of in and out. No one gets hurt. Right. And then there's the other times where I'm shopping for discovery and I'm shopping because there's just, you know, it's, a, it's wonder and awe and just sort of what will I learn new today? But that doesn't happen often within stores it happens within um, main street any any spot usa or like you said on those trips where you're traveling and it really is just what is this world of you know wherever it is in the world what is it about so that's a discovery thing but in your you have to think about both of those um you can't make the per totally purpose driven store and you, you but and you also have to make it for the wanderer who's going to come in and they're going to buy socks, but then all of a sudden, eh, they've got half an hour to kill. What do you do, right? How do you keep them there? So that must add a certain layer of complexity, right? Where you're trying to, I guess, push these parallel paths forward. Who's the discoverer? Who's the guy who's in and out and no one gets hurt? How do you deal with that? Yeah, well, that's um, that's a it's a really great question. I'm also going to add one more to oh. that list. So you've got the you've got the convenience folk who mm -hmm. just get in, get out, make it easy for me. You've got someone who does kind of want to linger and, and shop and, and find things they didn't know they were going to need. And then you've got those individuals who actually want to speak to someone who are experts. Oh, right. Yeah, because you think about whether it's, um, you know, whether it's how to swing a bat, 
whether it's what cleat you need, whether it's how I swing a golf club, how I get fitted for the right golf club. It's like you want to speak to someone who typically these are individuals who also play the game or played the game. And so we always think about it through the lens of those three, those three subsets because each one of them have a unique journey. And, you know, it's interesting because you asked the question a minute ago regarding how and why are people coming to stores? Mm-hmm. And, and it's interesting because there's so much that you can learn online. There's so much that you can look at in terms of what are the features and benefits. But getting into a store and being able to swing that bat means something. Being able to, to feel how it, um, you know, how you grip it and then having someone talk to you about it. And, you know, it's interesting because, um, you know, with our house of sports stores, we've got three of them and we've used them as R&D labs. And what we're doing is we are taking what is working in those stores and we're taking that and putting it back into the existing fleet. And a great example is like our batting cages. So we've got these batting cages where people can come in um, and try out uh, bats for both um, baseball as well as softball. We now have those at 170 stores because we found that, yeah, people do absolutely love to shop online, but there's also this piece of like, let me try it. Let me feel it. Um, let me experience it. And then lots of times, I mean, I think about that too, a little bit more like the enthusiast, Mm -hmm. but then you've got mom and dad who are, you know, just trying to get, you know, the kids outfitted with like, what's the right equipment. And sometimes they don't know, they get the list from the coach or they talk to another parent, but then being able to come into the store and have someone work directly, um, you know, with their son or daughter is a really big deal, a really big deal. And I watched that at House of Sport, actually. I, I went and I did a tour in the summer and I, I was standing there watching and the dad was in the batting cage with his, his young son. And this this kid couldn't have been more than like four inches tall. I mean, he was just like little. I thought, oh my, my the bat's the size of this kid. Um, but he was in there with his dad and he was, and you had a, a, a teammate who was, you know, shuffling bats in front of him and his dad was swinging and he was saying, remember how to stand with your feet and line it up. And it was amazing. And I think I've heard you say before, something like, um, we're going to give our customers a reason to come in and actually try out our products. And I think you're right. I'm a big technophile. I love the world of technology, especially immersive digital stuff and how that can augment experience. And I think it will likely in the future, but there is no substitute for being in the cage or the smell of leather. I don't know. I'm a weird, I'm weird that way. I'll go up to the the baseball gloves and I'll smell the leather because there's something about that that is intrinsically, you know, sensory. And I like that. And the house of sport, I think really is transformative in the industry in terms of being able to do those kinds of things. So what were some of the, you know, the main drivers to, you know, what, what the thinking was around house of sports and, and how it evolved? So I'm actually going to take us back uh, four years. I mean, we actually started House of Sport four years ago, and it's funny because at the time we we referenced it as um, as all you know. I think all companies have pet names for projects, and we referred to it as uh, ecosystem of the future. Now, nothing about that is particularly sexy when you try to do a hashtag. But what it was really doing was it was grounding us in 
it isn't just a brick and mortar experience. We had to think of it as an ecosystem for the brand and how does technology play a role in that? But, um, you know, Ed, as he, as he often does is the person that kind of gives us a North star and, and he has these, um, just intriguing ways of saying a phrase or making a comment. And then all of a sudden it lasts and we should all get t-shirts or bumper stickers. And, <laughs> and so yeah, that's exactly right. <laughs> We're all wearing the t-shirt, but you know, when we kicked off the project, his North star for us was, I want us to open a store that if it opened across the street from Dick's Sporting Goods, it would put us out of business. Oh, wow. That's that that was there's the challenge yeah that was the challenge and so you know we we led with crazy crazy amounts of um, customer insights and data we boiled it down and we said you know anything we do in this concept we are going to do it through one of the four pillars of experience service community and product so everything we do ladders back to one of those four pillars. Every test we run, um, it, and it just, it helped focus us. And it, you know, it's interesting because for as much as I love, love, love retail design, I also love that we created a very different service model inside of this box because I think the first time you, you visit a house of sport, you're like, okay, all right, this is... This is not what I know as Dick's Sporting Goods. And the second or third time, you're still like, well, it's 100,000 square feet plus. So you're like, oh, I didn't see that. And then the fifth, sixth, seventh, eighth time you come in, you're like, oh, product's starting to change over. But what will continue to bring you back are the associates, the teammates that we have in that box. And, you know, it's interesting because we, we start hiring about six months in advance. We put the management team in place, and we really start to go out and embed ourselves in the community. And, you know, there's a handful of really unique things about House of Sport that I love. And, you know, it, it is the experience that, you know, we've got fields. We've got a field attached to these doors. Uh, in two of them... Activities, play fields, like, yeah, uh, yeah, like yeah. soccer fields. Yeah, so it's, it's a 17,000 square foot field. Um, and we do everything from activations where we bring in the vendor community and... Uh, we bring in local athletes. Um, we have open playtime. Uh, it's interesting because all three of our doors in the communities have set up classes for um, the homeschool community because, you know, where else That's would... Huge. Yeah, right. Like, where else would they go? Um, we've got in, in the two doors that are cold climate doors, we convert them to ice rinks in, uh, in the winter. Uh, this is the first year Minnetonka, Minnesota opened... In May, so this is their first foray into winter, and they're already booked for the entire time period that it's an ice rink because people are looking for ice time. And so this sense of community and this sense of giving people an experience, uh, a reason to come to the store, is it, it's different. And it's also about thinking, what is it that's missing for people? And... I'll give you one other example that I'm, I'm very excited about is we do a lot of work in uh, these communities with small businesses. Mm -hmm. So like we've got a section of the store that we refer to as health and wellness. And we, um, in each one of our markets, we work with small businesses that do fresh juice. 
They bring it into us, you know, every couple of days and think about what that does for their business, expanding their footprint. Um, in a couple of two of the two of the three locations, we have small businesses that do like local T-shirts. And so being able to not just be um, the large brand that comes in and takes someone's business, but instead we're giving them space and traffic and eyes on their brand that they may not have otherwise. And so when you think about that sense of community and giving back and giving people a reason to come through the doors, I don't think it's any one thing about House of Sport that has caused us to think about being disruptive. Um, it's the combination of those four pillars and then learning from that and thinking about, well, you know what, this really does kind of translate into all of our stores. What I love about the idea of the little incubator company, you know, space is for a long time when I've been focused on this idea of technology and emerging technologies and what the potential implications are in terms of store planning, sizes of footprints that stores need. I mean, you arguably don't need to have, I'm, I'm going to just say 100,000 square feet because you just said the number that that's so sticks because, you know, we talk all about this endless aisle idea that, you know, you can reduce your skew count in the store and you can get rid of cash wraps because you got self-checkout now and you got all these sort of technologies that are emerging, but a lot of the architecture is already built and so you've got these boxes and they are 100,000 square feet or they're like that. So when you're capable of moving content or product out of the store to put it into a different channel like online saying, well, maybe we don't have to carry three million SKUs of shoes. We can carry, you know, one million SKUs and then and put the rest of it online for access that way. It, what it does is it frees up floor space. And then I think I was always saying, well, what are retailers going to do when they, when they realize that they can remove product from the store, reduce the assortment, make shopping and sort of navigation the assortment easier? And how do they reactivate square footage that they're paying for in relevant ways that draw community in? And it seems like the incubator space is like the perfect thing, right? We can't fill that with stuff, or we're going to tell our buying team, we don't want to fill it with stuff. We're going to get something else. But then it, it ties directly into that whole thinking of community and involvement and connecting into the fabric of the outside of the store, you know, into the sports teams and the local businesses that all have a shared, I guess, uh, sense of values, you know, and you align with, you know, product and, and what you're trying to sell and your customers. So I think that's really... I'm really curious about where that comes in, not as an afterthought, but as a pre, like a design strategic planning, you know, decision about, yeah, we're going to keep like X percentage of our store left over where we're not going to do anything. And that's going to be this thing that changes seasonally or changes weekly, maybe, you know, and, and, and continue to play that activation opportunity for people who couldn't you know, otherwise find a way into the retail space because they don't have the capital. It's expensive to nail down a, you know, lease in any store or any mall now. Um, and that just seems to make a lot of sense. And I don't think it costs you anything per se when you're talking about a small footprint, you know, within the context of the larger. I think you can make it up somehow. You know, you're not selling off that square foot, but you're connecting in a very different way. Yeah, I, so it's interesting because you're right. We did kind of plan that in all the way up when we were first um, when we were first concepting around um, the 
the activation space, um, we really thought about it from the very beginning of like, what is this concept of making the space totally flexible? So you're right, mm -hmm. 100,000 square feet seems like a lot, but if you were to talk to my merchant partners, they're constantly fighting for space. Correct. Um, and they wouldn't be my merchant partners if they weren't. But you know, everything inside of the space is totally flexible. The walls, everything's on wheels. Um, and we said, you know, what would it, what would we have to look like? What would we have to feel like to be able to invite people in for the incubator space? Um, we have areas in the store that we refer to as collabs where we work with our larger vendor partners and they not only come in and they've got this space for a period of time, but we've also started to kind of stretch the boundaries on that and say, okay, if you're going to have this space, we also need interesting activations. So, um, you know, they come in and they do everything from demos to customization to, uh, to fun runs, uh, so it's it's interesting because it does allow not only our brand to take on different energy, but it also allows very, very small brands to have a space and then the large brands to deliver a different experience. And then you pull all of that through and it's it's interesting because I think, you know, both you and I can remember the day when it was like, oh, boy, is it really worth doing something in one store? How many people are going to see it? Now you can do something in one store and thank you, social media. The next thing you know, it's like it's redefined how people think about the brand, about the shopping experience, about new product, about a new season. And so as we were thinking about the store, we did think about every aspect of how do you leverage the square footage? But then how do you leverage the story? I, I think that's one of the, the bigger pieces too in terms of experience is, you know, gone are the days that you just set product on the shelf and you know, it, it, it's interesting. It may be perfectly fine if you're, you know, if you're looking for anything from, from paper towels to Doritos. But when it comes to really interesting stories, that's a whole different way of thinking about experience and being able to bring brands to life, being able to give them a space to have the content that is very pure to them show up in unique ways that translate back to their DNA and how they want people to consume and how we activate end use. It's, it's very much about storytelling. And that's a component, too, of how do you bring an experience to life? Well, I'm glad we came back to that because I was, I was going, oh, I don't want to lose that opportunity, <laughs> right? No, because that's, that's it. And I think this is the fun thing about the world of retail design is I grew up um, in the industry um, in a visual merchandising office, ostensibly. Uh, I was the resident architect and we were doing a lot of vendor shops, but my boss, Joe Weishar, God bless him, um, he was all about that narrative and how visual merchandising practice in stores really are the stage set within which these narratives unfold. And the product for him was always the star of the show and, and what I did as an architect was important, but it wasn't as important as that stack of shirts or whatever the display was. Um, but that really is the key thing, right? How do you drive narrative into experiences? And I think what's critical, I'm curious about your point of view on this. Increasingly, the more we get connected to social media platforms that you were saying, you, know, you can say something in one store and all of a sudden, boom, it's in social media world. That facility with which you know a young audience is making stories and making those narratives up about themselves, the extent to which we can allow them to create and, and um, 
participate in the making of that narrative of experience in stores, I think will be a key driver to future store engagements. Now, I'm not sure exactly how that plays, but the more people participate, I think the more they get intimately connected, and I think it makes it more relevant to them. Um, so I'm, I'm, I love the idea of a story. What are your thoughts about how you get customers to engage that way, other than simply, here's the storyline, follow the journey and the yellow brick road, and, and you end up at a cash wrap. We were very prescriptive when we developed the stores in terms of making sure that there's space throughout the stores that's, a, well, I'll call it carved out, for interesting moments. And what I mean by that is I think everyone is trained as they, as they move through the world to see things where they're like, oh, now that's, that's super interesting. And so we have areas of the store, whether it be a wall, whether it be um, you know, an end cap, where it's just, it's beautiful. And I'll give you an example. Like in our, our fitting rooms, we've got this um, beautiful like faux greenery wall with this, you know, um, this like sign that's, you know, moves in colors. And what we find is that people constantly will sit in front of this wall, stand in front of this wall, do the selfie, and out it goes. Because, you know, in the big scheme of things, I think all retailers, um, you know, all, all industries can certainly create content. The best content is organic. Oh, sure. When people truly attach themselves to what they see. Mm -hmm. And so we were really purposeful. I, I think it's interesting, too, because, you know, what we sell in terms of, like, the hard line side of our business, you know, so whether it be the balls, the bats, the hockey sticks, you pull all of those together and all of a sudden they create a very interesting visual story in terms of what does that look like? And so creating these moments inside of spaces where people organically engage with it is also part of the formula that we have started to pull through in these concepts because it's, um, it's a way of creating a relationship and then letting people take it to the space they want to take it to. And I think that's a big piece of, uh, of all of this is like, um, you know, what's the, there's a couple of old sayings, um, you know, stack it high and watch it fly, yeah. um, you know, build it and they will come. And it's just, it's not the way the world works anymore. And so being able to create spaces and places where people can write themselves into the story is a big piece of our job. I want to go to public lands. Now I went and visited public lands in Cranberry and um, I think you inherited some great architecture from a previous Field and Dream store that you all had created as well. Uh, but it, it struck me, and it literally was, you walk in this place and it was like, wow, I want to go there. I want to go to that wall. It was like that was this enormous visual climbing wall as part of experience. And I think it, it seems to be a natural evolution off of batting cages and fields and, and things in Dick's Sporting Goods to say, well, yeah, if you're gonna be a climber, you gotta get out and climb. So take a moment to talk about public lands, what it is, you know, and what the plans are for um, its sort of growth in, in that emerging and like everyone's hiking now, it seems. I don't know what happened, but all of a sudden everyone's out hiking. Sure, so public lands, uh, we actually uh, launched that brand last year. Uh, we now have, as of this week, as a matter of fact, we now have eight locations, seven of which are actually conversions of existing um, stores that we had in our fleet. And so kind of the, the genesis of public lands was really thinking about the importance of our planet 
thinking about how important it is to think about like the, the communities that we're in, um, giving people access to being outdoors, uh, being thoughtful about giving back to the planet. And, you know, you're right. It's everyone's, and that's a, it's a byproduct of COVID. Everyone wanted to be outdoors. So whether you're hiking, whether you're paddling, whether you're camping, there was just this whole kind of rebirth of being outdoors is a great place to be. And part of public lands, especially when you go into the space, is making sure that it's not intimidating. Like we want a space where people are like, oh, I want to I want to go there. Interestingly enough, all of the photography in these doors, it's all shot locally. Because you know, many times when you go um, you know, when you go to things you're like, "Oh, I want to go to wow, I want to go climb that mountain." It feels very aspirational, but there is something about being able to walk in and be like, "Oh, that's that's the river like right down the road. I've I've been on that river." Like being able to feel that you can you don't have to go far, far away, you can experience what the earth has right in your backyard. And, you know, we, um, in, in those uh, boxes, we call the folks who come in explorers. And, you know, part of our service model in those boxes is to make sure that um, we have people that, whether you want to go on your first hike or you want to go on your 50th hike, we can help you find the products that you need in an environment that is fun, not intimidating. Uh, you know, I, I love what Todd, so Todd Spoleto is our um, president of public lands and what he has also done in terms of being able to help folks understand how to activate in the communities. They do an amazing amount of give back hours in the communities that the, the stores are in, um, you know, making sure that we're protecting, um, you know, what's, what is so precious, which is our earth. Um, but then also demonstrating to the community that we also want to be there with them. So you can kind of, you can see once again, um, as, as we in our time is that red thread for the parent company that Ed has, has um, provided us of Dick Sporting Goods Public Lands, um, our value chain, our Golf Galaxy Performance Centers, everything is about making sure that we are being thoughtful about the communities we're in and being respectful of the fact that that's a gift. My niece walked the Appalachian Trail this past year, and so I had a strong affinity, and, and you had a beautiful display in Cranberry on the, about the Appalachian Trail, which was really extraordinary, so it was like, bravo. I thought I was sending pictures back home to her going, hey, look at this. I always ask this question as a closer, and it is, what do you hope for your work in the world? What do you hope to bring to the places you work, the people you engage in the retail world? I'm going to go back to um, what I said a little earlier about it being so important for people to be able to see things. So what I hope for when people come into the retail spaces that we have is that they can write themselves into the story, that they see themselves as this is a place for them. And, you know, I, I think for the team that I work with, and the people around me, I always think about, I, I joke with one of my, um, one of my really great um, friends and coworkers, I'm like, oh my goodness, we're raising visual people because you know, it, it's like people are coming in and in some cases this is their first job. And I want them to know that the job they do makes a difference. 
that it isn't just about putting product on a shelf. It isn't just about, um, you know, making a sign. It's about leaving a little something that's important to you, your craft, leaving it for people to see and making them feel like they're important too. Tony Roller, SVP of in-store experience for Dick's Sporting Goods. Thank you so much. I've enjoyed this so much. And let's go skiing or something together. I think we got to, or hiking. Let's hiking. Go let's go hiking. Let's go no hiking. No skiing. No skiing, but definitely hiking. <laughs> okay, great. <laughs> Thanks for coming. Thank you. Next Level Experience Design Podcast is presented by VMSD Magazine and Smart Work Media. It's hosted and executive produced by me, David Kepron. Our original music and audio production by Kano Sound. Make sure to tune in for Dialogues on Data, Design, Architecture, Technology, and the Arts wherever you find your favorite podcasts. And make sure to visit vmsd.com and look for the tab for the podcast there too. Also, remember you'll always find more information with links to content that we've discussed, contact information for our guests, and more in the show notes for each episode.